Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in! It's no secret that shifting economic winds have driven American workers to take on more work and more job changes today than in previous generations. But what does this shift mean in a culture where so many invest so much of their identities in their jobs? In this episode, guest host Lisa Gulia interviews Professor Allison Pugh about her new book, The Tumbleweed Society, Working and Caring in an Age of Insecurity. In it, Dr. Pugh investigates some of the ways that the precarious conditions of today's workplace have generated ripple effects in the nature of relationships and family life. She explains how changes in obligations at work shape how we think about obligations and commitments in the most intimate corners of life. So welcome to Office Hours. Today we have with us Allison Pugh from the University of Virginia, and her new book is called The Tumbleweed Society, Working and Caring in an Age of Insecurity. Thanks for joining us, Allison. Thanks for having me. So I thought we would just start off the interview with kind of the basic question. Um, if you could explain to the listeners what you mean by saying that we're living in an age of insecurity right now and what your idea of the Tumbleweed Society is. Mm-hmm. Um, By the age of insecurity, I meant to draw attention to insecurity happening both at work and at home. So at work, jobs have become more insecure with job tenure lower and people more likely to have multiple jobs over their lifetimes, particularly for men employed in the private sector. And at the same time, trends in coupling or in intimacy have also increased in instability. So people are much more likely to cohabit, which are tend to be shorter term relationships. And at least for people without college degrees, which is of course the majority of people in the United States, the divorce rate remains at very high levels. And so by calling it the age of insecurity, I wanted to um, draw attention to both of those realms. And the Tumbleweed Society was my way of trying to capture an image or a metaphor of a society in which more people were rootless, moving on, kind of a constant pressure to move on from the ties that bind them at work and at home. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I think people who have read your previous book, right, Longing and Belonging, will remember that play with metaphors and that you draw on literature. So that makes it, you know, more fun than just having interview data. There's also these other <laughs> museums that you give us, which is great. <laughs> that is what I like to do. <laughs> it's what I like to read, and it's also what I like to write. Yeah, great. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the groups of people that you interviewed to kind of trace these different patterns of instability and in work and at home? Yeah, um, I wanted to vary both exposure to insecurity and uh, inequality. So when I think about my um, sampling frame, I looked at essentially three groups, three parts of a, of a uh, two by two box. Um, if you can think of like kind of more advantaged and less advantaged and people who are, uh, have have exposure to insecurity versus people who are still employed in what we might call, you know, stable jobs. So I have um, low-income people who, or or less advantaged people who um, are employed in stable jobs, and people who have had a lives of um, experiencing a lot of job insecurity. So stable jobs would include, you know, 
firefighting, police, um, uh, public school teaching, that kind of thing. And um, the insecure jobs actually were kind of a, a vast, a, a, there was a wide variety of work there. And then for the affluent I, or the more advantaged people, I actually only looked at people who had been, um, you, you could say exposed to insecurity. They, were, they, they had been relocated by their employers. So they kind of, um, they often had moved from job to job, but, it, but even to call it insecurity, they didn't see it that way. They saw it more as flexibility. And they, for the most part, they had really benefited from the larger um, opportunities and horizons, broader horizons that um, this kind of, these kind of trends have given them. So, yeah, so I vary, uh, you know, the point of, so the missing box, we can say that, the missing box are the more advantaged people employed in stable jobs. And um, you could say that that's, you know, university professors, for example. Um, but I wanted to get at kind of what is insecurity linked to, especially the broader impacts outside of work, but also looking in, in how it affects things at home. And I wanted to see how that varied by class. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to see that added dimension, right? Because so often when we talk about class, it's just, you know, who has more and who has less, but that there's this other dimension of stability that you highlight. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was trying to. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the employment piece? Um, so your way of thinking about that is that workers are still committed to a one-way honor system. So how does that work? Yeah, um, that was one of a, a very, for me, it was a very powerful finding because I went in expecting some form of anger, expecting um, um, working class people or just people who had experienced insecurity to uh, kind of approach that or handle that insecurity by with outrage. How can I have been uh, dismissed or, you know, this layoff was terrible. I was a great worker or something, anything like that. And I didn't find it. Instead, much more often I found people excusing the employer, um, assuming that layoffs and jobs and job insecurity, um, that those trends were uh, inevitable and kind of excusing the employer, absolving the employer of any um, uh, obligation beyond, as one of my um, interviewees said, beyond um, respect and a paycheck like that. That's what employers owe nowadays, according to my informants. And that was a shock to me. That was because, partly because I know in the United States how strong the attachment to work can be. Um, people uh, identify a lot with work and, and uh, work is, you know, kind of of paramount importance in a lot of people's um, talk about themselves and how to be honorable. And that's actually the second part of the one-way honor system because while they absolve the employer, they still hold themselves to a, quite a high standard. Now, of course, these are interviews. I'm not observing them at work. They could not, it, they, they couldn't, they might not live up to everything that they said they were. But in terms of claiming an honorable identity that was still attached to, I give 100, 150%, 200% at work. I have a very strong work ethic. I identify with work. I kept hearing these 
um, you know, kind of professions of, uh, of dedication and loyalty, and um, at the same time, this kind of resignation and kind of shrugging their shoulders when thinking about what employers owe employees. So it felt very one-way, and in fact, a one-way honor system because it was about the claiming of honor and how to do that. And just to clarify, uh, in that you're talking about the people who had experienced the instability, is that right? Yes, thank you. Right, yes. Um, these are for people who experienced insecurity. They uh, seem to kind of give their employers a free ride and just be like, yeah, that's the way the world is today. They, that's just, you know, there's a broken social contract, but that's not the employer's fault. The employer is just trying to uh, survive in today's competitive economy. That's what, that, that seemed to be a very uh, prevailing sentiment. Um, that differed for the stable um, workers who did expect uh, stable employment. But everyone else, no. That's, that's you know, an, a, an item for nostalgia only, something for which we can yearn or, or kind of look back with, oh, why is that gone, but not an expectation for today. Yeah. Thank you. So you, you just started to hint at sort of that comparison over time that people have this idea that that, that is the way things used to be. But you also do a really good job in the book in putting it in this, uh, you know, country to country comparison, right? This international context. And you point out the way that individuals think about their situation here and the way employers are able to treat people and families as disposable is not how things work, right? In other similarly rich industrialized countries. Could you talk a little bit more about those contrasts and what kind of prompted you to give that context? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think with any any uh, conversation about work, it's really important to put the United States in international context um, because we, uh, in part, I should say, to break down or to tackle that sense of inevitability. Americans perceive this job insecurity as inevitable, but other countries do not. People in other countries do not. They actually tackle it as a problem or um, a a trend that you can fight or mediate or you know mitigate in some way um, and do so with your eye not just on benefiting employers but also protecting workers and so it's important the international context really um, shows uh, you know kind of how uh, kind of particular and local and parochial even is the U.S. perspective. If you look at Germany or Denmark or the Netherlands, um, countries are trying different strategies of how to tackle insecurity. Um, Most famously are the latter two, Denmark and the Netherlands. Um, They've pursued, they invented essentially and and have pursued uh, a um, tack called uh, um, flexicurity, in which they allow employers um, greater um, flexibility in being able to fire or lay off people, um, trying to kind of temper the traditional heavy-duty European labor market regulations. So they're kind of turn down the volume on that, but at the same time, not entirely give up on worker protection. So they offer um, fairly generous income support for people who get um, laid off, and they also do a really extensive job training. And the job training is actually not just for people who have been laid off, but also people who are still employed, who can do it kind of, you know, after work or uh, in their um, free time. It's just 
um, it's really a system that seems to consider both employer and employee part of the kind of citizen body that to which they are responsible. And it's not the way it is here. Now, of course, Denmark, for example, has something like 80% unionization. And in the United States, I think we're down to 11% unionization. I think when you're talking about private sector, you're at 6%. So that's like practically nobody. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of understand why we um, don't have those kind of worker protections here. But it doesn't mean that it's inevitable. And how did you come to make those contrasts? Was that something that you were reading along with what you were doing? Or was that part of where you were in the conversations you were having? Kind of both, I think. Um, the flex security stuff, you know, it's um, there's a lot of conversation about this in the EU. Um, and also, I was giving 11 talks about this in Germany in 2013. And that was fascinating because it really you could say internationalized my perspective and their response to it was fascinating. They were, you know, horrified or, or at least let's call them, you know, deeply worried about what they perceived as, um, you know, trends that might be coming their way. Hmm. So they were really shocked about like the kind of worker acquiescence that I reported and that other people have found as well, like Carrie Lane and uh, Ofer Sharon. And a lot of people have found this kind of, um, sense of inevitability. And um, so even though these countries have greater unionization, have different in work institutions, it's not, cl- it's not clear that they're on one end of a continuum and here comes the American juggernaut. Sometimes they, they perceive that or they're anxious about that. So their response to my talks was a lot of, uh, you know, a- anxiety. <laughs> So you had to do some some emotion management in the Q&A time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. Okay. So um, back pulling back from international context. Yeah. So I wanted to ask a little bit about um, the dimensions of the book, right? So you said you look at this class dimension and the security dimension, and because you're talking about intimate life and care obligations, it ends up um, having a lot to do about gender, right? And so throughout the book, you're talking about how class and gender matter. And from my perspective, as someone who's currently teaching race, class, and gender, then my little light goes off and I say, oh, can you touch on why race was not as central to this analysis? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so you're right that, you know, of course, class is built into the sampling frame. Um, but I did that because of, you know, prior work and hypotheses that that's going to shape how much insecurity hurts. Um, and that is indeed what I found. So that without the buffer of additional resources, you know, the less advantaged people seemed quite abandoned by their work. And, and, um, when you kind of, uh, look at how their home lives uh, kind of responded to that. Um, gender definitely shaped how people responded to these stressors. So I'm finding that, or I found that among working class um, men and women, kind of gendered expectations of what men and women owed each other in the home affected how they coped with that instability at work. So you have uh, women who are kind of expected to, you know, who owe men their caregiving under kind of traditional or conventional gendered expectations under really tough circumstances needs become very overwhelming in some of these families. And so I found some women kind of shouldering these really 
extraordinary burdens or others kind of running away from them and declaring independence uh, in some way. Meanwhile, working class men owe women their pro providing, but they are entitled in these kind of traditional or conventional gender arrangements to women's caregiving. And so when they didn't get it or they saw it as not quite sufficient, they were quite angry. They, they had the kind of indignation um, that reflected these, what I came to consider kind of gendered trajectories of obligation, mm -hmm. whose the historical assumptions about who owes what to whom played out in the emotions that they allowed themselves to feel. So where's race in that? So I included some racial diversity in my sample, but not enough to do more than really suggest potential patterns by race. And in my opinion, or you know what I'm what I'm willing to say based on that um, those findings is that my research suggests that the same patterns hold true across race, um, but that the burdens these intense burdens in these communities of need are, are I would say, even more intense, more daunting, um, since communities of color have been harder hit um, by job instability. Um, some African-American women I interviewed um, were not just the commitment heroes that I um, came to kind of uh, kind of, I came to find a group that I considered commitment heroes. These were the kind of mostly women shouldering these unbelievable, um, uh, overwhelming burdens um, of need. So I have the African-American women I interviewed, some of them were not just commitment heroes in their own nuclear families taking care of, you know, their own special needs children or their own Alzheimer's afflicted parents, but also they had broader definitions of who could count on their care. So that would be the kind of what Carol Stack called fictive kin, you know, the kind of broader definitions of who counts and who counts as family and who counts as someone to whom I might owe something. Um, but because it's a really uh, small sample of um, people of color, I can't say for sure that that's true, but I did feel like it was kind of like the same impact just kind of with the volume turned up some. So in that, I guess you were starting to talk a little bit about um, the intimate and care connections. So I wanted to delve yeah. a little bit more into that. So the way I was thinking about it was that you're talking about how these, um, this devotion or this, you know, commitment to people endures or doesn't in intimate life. Um, yeah. So could you explain a little bit about how people think about their intimate commitments and how that splits specifically between the people who enjoy the material and employment advantages and those who don't? Yeah. This, I, this was a, you know, flat out discovery that I made in this research that um, in some cases, in some ways surprised me, which is always exciting as a scholar. Um, and it's, it's a discovery that emerged from the interviews. So people who were well off and taking advantage of insecurity to whom this insecurity felt more like flexibility, they often enjoyed these enduring relationships. And as quantitative research tells us, the divorce rate for college-educated people is down to late 1960s levels. So it's, they've really gone down precipitously since 1980. So these people talked about their relationships in this kind of low-key kind of way. They were not rhapsodic, um, you know, holding forth about the joy that they felt every day. They did not go on about, you know, the thrills of um, seeing their spouse or partner, but instead they talked to me about how they got along pretty well. 
and um, they talked about the compromises that they made along the way. And that, that was interesting. And then the working class people who had experienced job insecurity um, and felt it as insecurity, um, there, was, there was a lot of fervor and intensity in the way they talked about their relationships. And I came to think of that as uh, kind of answering to them. It, it seemed like they were answering the call of, of, a, of like a really powerful sense of duty. It's the duty we owe each other. And that duty had like a sacred quality. It wasn't like a plodding sense of, oh, I'm just doing what I need to do because to be a good person. It was like, this is, you know, my claim to this is why I can look myself in the mirror, you know, like a, this very powerful kind of fervent um, language. Um, and that was true on the negative side when people felt the outrage of their betrayal. And it was true on, you could say, a more positive side when they were like deeply committed to um, their uh, um, uh, partners or taking care of children or whatever. So that was kind of interesting because um, I felt like I had found the emotional backdrop to the quantitative fact that we know, which is that kind of intimacy patterns are intensely class stratified. And so you have, you know, kind of enduring, enduring relationships among people who are advantaged and less enduring or more short term among people who are not. So I was like, okay, we have this fact and this is, um, you could say either a mechanism or at least the emotional kind of backstory behind that fact. But that's not actually the end. My most favorite finding, the, the surprise that came out of this for me, was the working class stable people. Because these people, I think, are hidden to current scholarship. We don't really examine the private lives of working class stably employed people. We divide mo most uh, family research really focuses on class inequality, the effects of poverty or you know income deprivation, and and they find that you know. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's that finding that low-income people are more inclined to divorce, more inclined to cohabit, less inclined, you know, that kind of thing. So um, the interesting thing about the working-class stable people is they sounded like the advantaged people. And that's just not supposed to happen. That's not what, the, what our existing knowledge predicts. Our existing work predicts um, that class shapes how you talk about intimacy or ex how you experience intimacy. And mm -hmm. instead, I had two groups, very differently advantaged, who sounded the same. This kind of um, resigned, compromising, shrugging their shoulders. We're getting, we're doing pretty well, like that. And so I was like, wow, maybe this, A, maybe this is what enduring relationships sound like. And B, Maybe this is a hidden population, this working class stably employed. And I'm, I, in the book, I call upon, and in several conferences, conference talks I've given since then, I call upon quantitative scholars to investigate um, this, um, you know, kind of uh, theory or hypothesis that I've produced here that working class stably employed people don't have the same divorce rate and same kind of experience of uh, less enduring relationships that uh, working class insecurely employed do. That it's not just class, but it's insecurity too. Great, thank you. 
So uh, moving on from that kind of intimate partner relationship, you also devote a chapter of the book to parenting, right? So you explain how people think about their situations in the workplace and their intimate relationships and then how that shapes their parenting philosophies. So one thing that really caught my eye was your discussion of how there's this kind of puzzling misfit between the ideology of the intensive mothering and kind of these emerging ideas about children's independence. So could you talk a little bit about that and how you explain the coexistence of these two seemingly contradictory ideas? Um, I'm actually writing a research article about this right now because uh, it is still a mystery, I think. Um, so ideas, the, the, the kind of the core mystery is that ideas about women and children have often gone hand in hand. So that, you know, women's power in the late 19th and early 20th century grew as children grew in their symbolic value. And so as the value of motherhood expanded, children became more uh, like hothouse flowers to be tended. And now we are seeing, you know, the continuation of that on the motherhood side, the rise of intensive mothering, uh, helicopter parenting, snowplow parenting. I've heard a lot of different names, tiger moms, concerted cultivation. There's many terms for the kind of increased focused intensity of modern parenting. And so it seems... Like, it seems very clear, and a number of scholars, including in Tumbleweed, um, kind of have found that intensive mothering is linked to increasing insecure, worries about insecurity. And in Tumbleweed, I report that some of the women that I interviewed seem to get a lot of meaning out of intensive mothering because of the very scope of the demands um, of, you know, being an intensive mother is so consuming and that's in such great contrast to other kind of bonds and ties, light ties, tenuous connections. There's just so much that's required and demanded of the intensive mother. And that itself is a compelling um, contrast. Um, in addition, there, um, as I think Ana Villalobos has found, they're doing this in part to kind of compensate or... Um, kind of respond to uh, heightened insecurity in other domains like environmental insecurity or ontological insecurity or lots of different kinds of insecurity. And then Marianne Cooper has um, some great work talking about uh, kind of economic insecurity and how that shapes the desire to, you know, at least nail down the children's future like that. So there's a lot of work that talks about kind of intensive mothering and its attachment, its linkage to greater insecurity. But then we have the children section, and this is what makes it the mystery that, you know, another group of scholars that I would say is not that linked to the motherhood um, literature has been talking about how children are growing older, younger, that they have, um, you know, increased consumer power, in some places even increased political power. There are places where 16-year-olds can vote. Um, and so motherhood has expanded even as children have become more independent. This remains a mystery, I think, that I, one that I'm still tackling in this um, research article I'm writing. It's a kind of a decoupling of motherhood and childhood. And I think there's a bunch of different answers that um, are plausible. Uh, one might be that we're actually talking about different children. So if you put inequality into that equation, you know, you have uh, um, low-income children are, are never granted as long a childhood or, or era of independence, uh, of dependence as um, upper-income children. And, you know, you have 
uh, kids being tried as adults and stuff like that. So when you put in insecure, uh, when you put in inequality, it makes us have to be more careful about those assertions about childhood independence. However, um, the political, the increased consumer and political power we're talking about is, you know, of advantaged kids. So the mystery still remains. Inequality doesn't uh, take care of the whole thing. So, you know, what is that? I'm still working on it. I think there's a lot of ambivalence about contemporary motherhood and childhood and the ambivalence might be in the kind of twin, uh, a kind of collision is how I'm currently thinking of it, uh, uh, between this kind of symbolic motherhood and childhood. Oh, you know, they have so much value and I really need to do this intense work versus the real experience of children, which actually with increasing number of the numbers of them being singletons, increasing children, increasing numbers of children being the children of single mothers. There's a lot of like kind of structural factors that are expanding children's importance and children's presence in the home, as opposed to just, you know, kind of subordinate members of a, of a, of a total unit. And so there is, I don't have it solved yet, but it is a continuing mystery and, um, you know, I'm still working on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll keep an eye out for the article. Exactly. <laughs> More to come. Yeah. So I wanted to switch um, kind of to the end of the book when you're talking sort of after you've kind of outlined the situation as you see it, right? And sociologists get lots of credit for outlining social problems and kind of explicating meaning and then sort of when we come to the what to do that's always our much our much shorter section of our books and articles right Um, and so you don't so much you know give a call for collective action as just kind of describe one situation in which you see perhaps an alternative and this is what you talk about as the coral society so could you paint that picture for the listeners sure Um, so you have the tumbleweed society which is its metaphor for uh, kind of insecurity and an unmoored populace. Um, but something that I wanted to do with this final chapter was to tease it, was to kind of really strong, you know, address straight on what I consider a lingering problem in family scholarship, which is this kind of conflation of family structure and family diversity. So, or I'm sorry, family family structure and family stability is what I mean. So, um, one thing that a trend that's really important that is, you know, um, uh, maybe the most important trend in families, it's not just the increased uh, kind of churn, but also the flowering of multiple different kinds of families. So, uh, in... I think is it 1950, at the end of the 1950s, 65% of children lived with married parents where the father worked and the mother was not employed in the paid labor force. So that's a, you know, modal family or that's a, you know, majority family. We have no majority family today. The most, um, the most you could claim, you know, the the kind of biggest proportion um, live in two income married parents, but that's only 34%. Like that's a, that's, you know, not, that's a pretty 
small plurality, you know. And then the next two um, kind of big chunks are about 22% each, nearly equal chunks. They One set live with single moms and one set live with married male breadwinner families. So it's kind of, it's a there's a diversity of family, and that's not even mentioning, you know, same-sex families, adoptive families, grandparent families, lots of different kinds, and single fathers who are also increasing in number. So that's actually, I think, um, like a good thing, uh, the diversity. Um, and what work has, the work scholarship more recent scholarship has found that, like, for instance, when we're talking about, like, kind of impact on children, what really matters is not necessarily the family structure, but how much transition those children go through. So how much, so basically, instability matters more than family structure. And that's a very powerful insight that I wanted to kind of um, amplify and, and demonstrate. So if you could think of, I, you know, racked my brain for a metaphor that would capture both diversity of structure or diversity of, you know, diversity, we'll call it family diversity, and then endurance. And what is that? I was thinking, okay, there's coral, you know, um, <laughs> you know, thinking of like kind of these rock hard, but very um, widely varying um, kinds of, you know, organic material. And, um, and the interesting thing is what, um, like kind of uh, the case study that I use in this chapter is um, a, it's a same-sex family who also keeps um, very closely connected to the father of the child. So it's essentially a three-parent family. And those are increasing in number, and indeed in the United Kingdom, they actually have developed law to hmm. enable that to happen. They call that parental responsibility. In the United States, we make third parents, we make the original, one of the original pair uh, disavow that child um, so that the third party can step in. You can never have more than two parents at any one time legally in the United States. It's what's called a substitutive model. But the UK model is an additive model where mm -hmm. you can have more people interested in that child with, you know, kind of responsibilities for that child. And that's, I think, um, enabling an endurance for these uh, diverse families. That's a policy change that I, th that I you know, recommend. And it's happening in California and a few other states um, California's done it through the legislature. Others have done it like in the court system a little, you know, it's, it's piecemeal as often these things are in the United States. Um, the thing that's interesting about this case that I look at, this, this you know, three-parent family, is it is anchored by the kind of primary uh, wage earners' um, stable employment. Now that's, you know, there's some contradiction here because um, stable employment for the first eight chapters of the book, we can see that it produces some fairly conventional gendered arrangements or, or it enables that. And that's been found in other people's work. So um, that great book that um, Naomi Gerstel and Dan Clausen have come out with, Unequal Time, finds that... Um, uh, people who have control, more, more control over their time, use that control to 
kind of buttress fairly traditional gender um, configurations at home. And, you know, so there is some risk that there is some suggested linkage, I think, between stable employment and these kind of conventional gender stories. But in these, but I also find, I also find that once you have these more diverse or unusual family arrangements, stable employment helps. Stable employment will help a single mom stay a single mom and be able to support her child on her own without having to careen from man to man searching for a provider that will help her and, you know, help her, you know, exist or help her survive, help her and her children survive. So stable employment, um, you know, while it seems it could be linked to kind of conventional gender arrangements, also seems to really uh, be important for uh, ensuring the health of the diversity that uh, we now have. So the health of the choral society, I would say. Okay, yeah. So since since the book kind of tries to look at two different spheres, right, you're trying to look at the insecurity in the workplace and in the home, it sounds like when you're thinking through the choral society that you're seeing recommendations for sort of workplace policies and home policies. Mm-hmm. And the I didn't go into it this much into the book um, in terms of workplace policies. I I make I point out the flex security model. There's you know, and I talk about unionization. Um, there's some things that employers can do. You know, um, there's a number of um, kind of policies that uh, they can consider to, or the um, you know Congress can consider to encourage more longer-term employment. Um, one example is uh, helping employers or allowing, enabling employers to use unemployment insurance to uh, kind of subsidize a lowering of hours across the board rather than laying off a whole bunch of people. And that's um, being done in a number of states, but it's still fairly piecemeal. And that actually policy is used to a much greater degree in Germany, for example. So there are things, it's not, uh, I don't know, it's not, um, not, you know, it is uh, susceptible to policy. It is, there are things that we can do. Um, The Choral Society was me trying to portray another another vision. Yeah, and I, I think I also was wondering, the Coral Society, how, how I don't know, feasible or how widespread do you see it at this point? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I In your crystal ball. I don't want to be <laughs> pessimistic. I would say right now that's very difficult because what I'm looking for, what what we want for the Coral Society is for kind of less advantaged people, people say without college degrees, to have access to stable employment. And that uh, is, um, you know, doesn't seem to be a, a big priority. And in part, I would say, in part the problem that I feel here is that Americans seem to think it's inevitable, as I say. They've already given up. They think, well, this is just what has to be done. This is this is the cost of uh, living and um, you know succeeding in a globally competitive world, and that inevitability that is actually false. <laughs> um, Leslie McCall, the great inequality scholar, has talked about how actually it's not 
um, inevitable. It was essentially a management fad that was instituted in like the late 70s, early 80s, in which corporations started like kind of looking across the way and saying, well, if you're going to break your social contract, I'm going to do that too, just in case so I don't get left behind. But is there proof that, you know, kind of it um, helps the bottom line? Well, economists have actually done a lot of work on this over the decades, and the evidence is in. And there have been a lot of rigorous studies um, uh, and a number of review articles looking at the kind of metadata across multiple studies that find that actually, no, productivity does not improve. Morale goes down. Productivity goes down. Um, uh, and kind of more, even most surprising and shocking to me, uh, they call them, they result, layoffs, for example, result in negative wealth effects. So they don't even improve in the um, shareholder price. And you'd think, oh, well, that's why they're doing it. They don't even improve there. So um, if it's bad for workers, bad for companies, <laughs> um, done for a management fad, we need to really uh, turn away from this notion of it as inevitable. And when I see that happen, when I see that message get out there, that's when I'll have more optimism about the Coral Society coming. This episode of Office Hours featured Dr. Allison Pugh speaking about her new book, The Tumbleweed Society, Working and Caring in an Age of Insecurity, and it's available from Oxford University Press. This week's interview was hosted by Lisa Gulia, edited by Matt Gunther, and produced at the University of Minnesota through the Society pages. You can find back episodes of Office Hours and all kinds of great written content on our website, thesocietypages.org.